It's, as I said, it's good to be here. It's particularly good to be here for me because on Monday I was climbing across the Sydney Harbour Bridge and, you know, looking down, wondering whether I was going to fall to my death or whether today was the day the terrorists attacked Sydney Harbour or, or whatever was going on, but kind of helps you understand you've got to rest in the sovereignty of God as you are going to walk over these structures. But we made it back and here we are to uh, continue our Summer Psalm series. Um, I don't know if you were here last week, but um, great message by Ben on our Right Now Media Library that we have, uh, which is an awesome um, resource that our church has and we don't just use it here on a Sunday. You can, you can have access to all the messages, all the Bible study information, everything that's on our Right Now uh, media library is yours to have and you can watch 800 messages a week uh, if you can't get enough here on a Sunday. So if you don't know about that, uh, see me after the service and I'll sign you up to it. But we're continuing on in our Psalm series and um, what we're going to do is we're, we're just kind of looking at five psalms and for the purpose of this series, uh, we've broken the psalms down into five, uh, five genres, five types that are sort of universally recognised. People kind of break them down differently. But for the sake of this series, we've run with a pretty universal, standardised understanding of them. That is that there are praise psalms. Uh, last week you had a royal psalm, uh, wisdom psalms, which is today... Uh, lament and then thanksgiving psalms. Psalms are sort of unique to us in their, in their composition, uh, that they're written by human authors, uh, as all scripture is, but written by human authors as they understand God. They reflect and convey the passions and the, the affections of the human heart. Psalms are not what we'd call like typical uh, scripture revelation uh, of God where he, where he says, you know, uh, thus says the Lord, or he says to a prophet, write this down, and you get the, kind of, you get the, the word of God being recorded. Or, or they're not like um, the chronicalized history recording of God's redemptive activity and purposes in the world. Uh, they're, they're, they're human emotion, human thought. Nevertheless, they are assumed to be guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we rightly call them scripture. As Bob Vogel uh, puts it, he says, they do more than express human passions and thoughts. They are the place where where that passion uh, and the grace of God intersect. Psalms represent theology and work, uh, theology at work in real life, and enable... uh, later readers to use them in a similar context, in a similar corresponding situation. That's what makes them so timeless. John Calvin, great um, 16th century reformer, said this of the Psalms. This is why they're, they're timeless in their impact. No one will discover in themselves a single feeling that is not reflected in the mirror of the Psalms. All grief, Sorrow, fear, doubt, hopes, cares and anxieties. In short, all those tumultuous agitations, great 16th century language, all those tumultuous agitations of the soul are expressed in them. And so Psalms give us an appropriate way to engage in, uh, uh, with and express our passions, uh, our, our prayers, our desires, grief, sorrow, joy, doubt, fear, triumph and all of it in worship. Have you ever thought about that? 
that worship is the appropriate place to be appropriately informed on how to be angry, how to be sorrowful, how to get your emotions out with God in worship amongst his people, in his presence, not at home on your couch, not at home on social media, not in splendid isolation, but here amongst the people of God, in God's presence. It's extraordinary. Today we're looking at Psalm 73, which has been classified, as as Nick uh, said, a wisdom psalm. Could Could have fallen into the lament category, But due to the similarity of language that we find in this psalm, that that we find uh, in wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes and the book of Job, it gets classified as wisdom literature. What wisdom literature seeks to do is to instruct how to live life according to God's moral and spiritual order. Give you a right and godly perspective in contrast to uh, what wisdom literature calls folly, uh, the behaviour, if you like, uh, the symptoms of of sinful living and and recklessness and foolishness, that in turn enables you to live, as this psalm says, with a pure heart, in relationship with God appropriately. Wisdom Wisdom is living appropriately in the order that God has established, in right relationship with him, in right relationship with creation and with each other. That is what uh, wisdom is seen to be. Even in this present uh, broken, dysfunctional world, we can still live in wisdom. Wisdom, as far as the Bible is concerned, begins with the fear of the Lord the awe of God, the forming of our heart and our mind around the character of God. Again, not around you know, social media, not around the progressive ideas of, of culture setters and changes and the sloganized sort of arguments that go on. The wise person orders their life and all their uh, reality around an eternally good and just God and not the passing environments, not the fleeting feelings and experiences of that we encounter in, in this dysfunctional world, in this broken world. That is seen as folly. Well, this psalm, it, it's written by this dude called uh, Asaph. Uh, he is accredited with about 12 of the psalms out of the 150, and Asaph is a worship leader. When the Ark of the Covenant was returned to the tabernacle, we read about it in First Chronicles there, chapter 6, David graves Asaph and appoints him to oversee the music and the worship that should uh, you know, go along with such a great occasion. He was also called upon to sing at the dedication of Solomon's temple. On that occasion, the glory of God filled the house of the Lord in such a way that it, that it just silenced the worship leaders and the players of music and those that were there uh, to create an atmosphere that pointed to God's glory, God came and said, I'll take over this right now. So he's kind of like an ancient Darlene Czech or, you know, uh, Chris Tomlin or Reuben Morgan or these guys, just gifted in, in praise and worship of God, someone who knows, uh, like as we just said, the overwhelming 
uh, glory of God, um, literally in, in very unique encounters that he's had. So, if he's writing a psalm, we would expect him to write a psalm that just magnifies the greatness of God. It's all about the praise and the worship of God as he's encountered him, as he's heard about him, as he serves in the tabernacle there and, and later in the temple. That is not what we find in Psalm 73. This great figure of ancient worship uh, of God writes about his struggles, his doubts. He writes about his inability to reconcile and to deal with the ease of life that the ungodly have and the struggle and the brutality that the righteous seem to experience. He writes about the feelings of his heart, the emotions that that tear him apart as as he looks at this inequity, this injustice that he sees. And but, for the grace of God, this nearly leads him to a place of despair in God. This is Israel's prime worship leader. We find here a, a moving uh, autobiographical reflection on the suffering of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked. And he's, term, he's turmoil in that. Tell me something. Have you ever felt this? Or maybe you're in that space right now, this morning. Have you ever looked out from the front porch of your house or across the job site where you work or or even as you sit in that pew here Sunday morning or Sunday morning after Sunday morning and you just are burning with resentment. You are seething with anger about how despite or maybe perhaps precisely because of your devotion to God, you never, never seem to enjoy the same material comforts that the ungodly enjoy. You never seem to scoot on through life, get those promotions that the ungodly just seem to have come their way. You never seem to get ahead like whatever that means, you know, like the ungodly seem to be able to do. They live carefree, they live careless. They don't have the same moral constraints that you have, but they seem to get ahead. Have you ever harboured bitterness because of your failing health? And yet Derek, tried to pick a name that isn't in this congregation, lives like a cross between a barnyard rooster and a pit bull and he's off as fit as a Murray Trout. Have you ever struggled with the questions of why do the pure of heart, those whose lives are devoted to God, suffer and endure hardship while those who could give a rip about God, in fact, who live in defiance of God and mock God, live in excess and enjoy an unencumbered life? Has that ever settled on your mind? It has on mine. It has on mine on occasion. On occasion, I have felt like a staff. This psalm is for us. This psalm is for me. Compounding the psalmist's distress, and perhaps yours and maybe mine, is the knowledge that God made a covenant with Israel that promised a blessing if people obeyed him. 
Read about it in Leviticus 26. Read about it in Deuteronomy 28. Blessing comes to the pure of heart. Jesus has said that he has come to give life and life abundantly to those who give their life to him. So what gives? Why am I feeling cheated? Why does it look like the wicked have a better stakehold in life than, than a staff, than maybe you, than occasionally me? It's hard to lead a nation in worship when you feel this way. It's, it's hard to come in here, is it not? And think, bless the Lord, O my soul, when you feel this way. But a staff shows us that it's in worship that our hearts and our minds are recalibrated to interpret life appropriately. This psalm tells us that our, our heads can know one thing and feel one thing and experience one thing while our hearts wander about another and experience another, and see another. This psalm tells us that there are at times, there are times when our broken experience of this sinful world can distort our view of it at a very deep level, can, can cloud, can obscure, can hinder what we know is true. This psalm allows us to feel and to know that that is a space or that is not a space really, that there's no recovery from. It's not a, not a space that we need to be lost in and that God aids the recovery of the distressed. His goodness makes it safe for the disillusioned to wrestle back to delight. We have a safe God. The psalmist moves through the vivid descriptions of the wicked and it escalates as it goes along in their practices of the wicked and their life of ease, driving him to greater and greater despair until he reflects on God, until he goes into the sanctuary of God and there a new vision grips his heart. And his skewed view, his skewed perspective of life is recalibrated. And now he sees that unlike the wicked, he actually enjoys the freedom and the fellowship of God. The problems of suffering is not solved. It still exists, hasn't been magically taken away. But the pain of it is relieved by the experience of the presence of God by the reassurance of his promises and his word to them. The reassurance of his justice and his blessing will be executed, if not now, certainly in the life to come. And hope is in store because the experiences of this life are temporary. But what God's blessing And what God has for the psalmist is eternal. Well, the psalmist starts his psalm with this renewed dedication, this affirmation of a fundamental truth. He's the believer here. But he had nearly lost this belief due to allowing his heart to be embittered by a distorted uh, dwelling, if you like, uh, on, on the ease of the wicked. It's not... Something that he's come to lightly, this position 
of this reinstated believer. It's not, it's no longer just a slogan, uh, that he put on a coffee mug, if you like, or whack on a fridge magnet to stick on his uh, fridge there. Truly God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart, is the ultimate conclusion to the struggle of his own heart. A heart that was seduced and healed, that was isolated, that, that was taken out of fellowship, but is now restored uh, back into fellowship. The pure of heart, who is uh, contrasted in this psalm against the arrogant and the wicked, this pure of heart is not a phrase that describes the sinless condition of a person, but more is a phrase that describes the orientation of a person's heart. To have a pure heart is to have a heart that desires God over all other desires uh, in, in, in the world. It's to have a heart that delights in the presence of God, that actually enjoys and longs for and seeks to be in the presence of God. David wrote that psalm, um, As the deer pants, so my soul longs after you. We kind of sterilise that, turns up on coffee cups and um, fridge magnets, like some kind of Chinese cookie line. But this is a man... Uh, unable to get to the tabernacle, to get to where God's presence is and enjoy God's presence and it's ripping him apart. He's like a deer dying of thirst to get back and encounter the presence of God. Delights in the presence of God. They live, the pure of heart live in loyalty to God, which is a condition that best enjoys God's blessing. In a way, the psalmist states the ultimate spiritual realities and promises. The goodness of God is best experienced in pursuing God in truth and not casting him in light of the injustice exercised by sinful people. And so the psalmist begins, despite how things may feel or how an environment or condition might challenge us, God is still good to the pure of heart. In these broken spaces and experiences, it is good to know that we can encounter a good God there. Warren Wearsby, great name, in his commentary on Psalms says, When pondering the mysteries of life, hold on to what you know for sure. Never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. The reality is, the believer is not immune to affliction, is not immune to hardship. That is not the promise. The psalmist is brutally honest as he confesses his public error about this. It's not too often that you see such a high-profiled figure so candid and so secure in their admission of sin or weakness, in their recognition that their heart had been seduced. It speaks to the level of healing that God has brought to his soul. Here is now a man who has deep security with God because of the honesty of his wrestle with God. You ever been in that space? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, 
that is, he is good to the pure in heart. And in Paul's context, the pure of heart are those whose hearts have been transformed by the sin-absorbing work of Jesus. If God is for us, if God uh, knows all your failures, sees all your weaknesses, moves through all your doubts, understands all your sin and his position towards you is that he says he will restore you, run toward him rather than away from him, then what accusation can destroy you? What thing out there can come along and, and, and crush you and overwhelm you that God doesn't already know about, that you can go to him about and wrestle with and talk through? That is ultimate security. When we have to admit our insecurities and our weaknesses before a loving God and find that he is good to deal with them, that he is faithful to deal with them. The phrase that we find here in verse 2, but as for me, and it's not always written exactly like that, it occurs four times throughout this psalm, this phrase, but as for me, is a device that the psalmist uses to confess his error. That's what's going on, to confess his folly. Or it's a device that he uses to emphasise uh, what God has done for him, uh, the goodness of God. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly slipped. Confession. But as for me, I was a beast. I was ignorant. I was a brute. But as for me, I am continually with you. you know, God doesn't leave me alone. You hold my hand. But as for me, it is good to be near you. I have made the Lord my refuge. Here the psalmist confesses the error of his way, verse 2, by way of a metaphor of losing one's foothold, which brings to mind the analogy that, that wisdom literature likes to use of life being a pathway. The psalmist is brutally honest and confesses that his pathway has become obscured, entangled, causing him to lose his balance, causing him to slip, to lose his perspective. What was the nature of this obstacle? The prosperity of the arrogant and the wicked. The ensuing symptoms as he focused on that, on this obstacle, was exaggerated self-pity, doubt in God's justice, unhealthy nurturing of bitterness and envy in his heart that should have been focused on God. The arrogant here are those who are enamoured with their own self-importance, inflated with their own egos. And the wicked, uh, which is a word that's used about 266 times uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, primarily in wisdom literature, this word wicked always accompanies, the wicked always accompanies the multitude of expressions of sin and evil that humanity engage in. So these are people who are overtly self-centred. And, and, and just fragrantly sinful. That's who are getting by well in life. And they prosper while he and the members of his congregation seem to suffer. He confesses that as he stews on and feeds his soul with this obstacle, his picture of reality becomes increasingly distorted and increasingly exaggerated. In fact, in verse 22 he says, I was brutish and ignorant. That's where this kind of thinking took me. I was like a beast 
towards you. Lost my mind, completely uh, irrational. In verses 4 to 14, the psalmist invites us into this wrestle. Again, in his honesty, he is confronting. He lays out emotions and confessions that, to be honest, us, you know, us good Christian people would not like to air, would not like to confess to, but he can because he's secure in God. His heart seethes with anger and envy toward the wicked who just seem to uh, enjoy unhindered prosperity. You can imagine how this wrestle comes about. We can imagine perhaps a case study for Asaph. As he moves about in his community, perhaps on his way to the temple, he sees the same young mother of three there each morning, each evening, begging, her begging for food, begging to get by. Her husband, who uh, a devout man who used to come to the tabernacle, to the temple, uh, to, to worship with him every day, has now been quarantined outside the city due to leprosy. And each day, this mom and her three kids look a little more dishevelled. There's no help for them. Until in time, there's only her, her husband and her children gone. Disease and poverty have cruelly taken them. Now rather than visit her husband in the camp, he has to sit and aid a homeless widow while the wicked, the fat and the sleek have no pangs in life. Even in death, they just seem to scoot on into that casually, drinking cups of tea and eating scones, dying peacefully in their sleep. They seem to be untouched, not stricken by the troubles and the hardships that are common to his congregation, that he sees all around him. They drive around in AMG Mercedes. Well, he's got a push start. He's banged up Datsun 180B. They intend the finest schools. Well, his children search eBay for second-hand books and uniforms. And his heart sees where is the justice. And because of this, The wicked are proud. Pride in biblical thinking is this rebellious disposition toward God and the neck is often the object used to describe the nature of uh, someone's pride. A stiff-necked person uh, was a proud person who would not yield to God. Asaph describes the wicked as celebrating their pride with, with impunity and carefree rejection of God. They wear their worldview, their station in life like a necklace, like a badge of honour, something to admire, something beautiful. They do whatever they like. They treat people however it suits them and they leave behind them a trail of violence through their schemes and their lawlessness and their disregard for the rights of others. And they frequently speak words of opposition against the Lord in heaven and they strut around proud and boastful rather than being concerned or repentant about their abusive, self-indulgent lifestyles. They set themselves up as culture shapers, as progressive thinkers, promoting the virtues of their lives and doing it with threatening language. 
to oppose them in their self-discovery and their avant-garde uh, way of life is to position yourself as a religious bigot. Sound familiar? With intimidation and fear, they shape society and they live in excess, saying all the while, is there a God? God can be God however you want him to be, but he's irrelevant to life. God has no say in things. He's ignorant to our behaviour. And even if he's not, he's powerless to do anything about it. So we'll continue to live in excess and we will continue to live in abusive ways. And then perhaps for the psalmist, the most painful thing, the great tragedy, the point of distress, is that as uh, Asaf continues to work on and, and, and maintain a pure heart, he sees the people of God joining in with this other world view to ease their own comfort perhaps, to find some comfort in life following the culture set by the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked. They get away with murder and they are praised and admired for it. They go from good thing to another and people long to be like them, following them on you know, Instagram, retweeting their tweets, just drinking up everything that they do in life. In verses 13 to 14, the psalmist confesses the deep pain of his struggle and how it is that very pain that God uses to bring him back to see a bigger picture. He confesses that he doubted the value of maintaining a pure heart, that he doubted the value of spiritual disciplines, of reading the word, of prayer, of of coming to church of a Sunday. In vain has he sought to lead a life that pleases God. His assessment is based purely at this point in time on his experience or lack thereof of material and physical comforts. He has allowed the commercial view of faith to overshadow the relational reality of faith. He has allowed the thinking that faith is a contract, not a covenant. That if we serve God and we do a good job of it, he should just bless us. And he should beat the living suitcase out of those who don't. This is what's guided his thinking. The question of justice, though, that burns him night and day is now used by God to say, you are actually feeling some of the pain that I feel for my people. The psalmist begins to realise the value of keeping a pure heart for it aligns his heart with God's when it's not distracted. The psalmist confesses now and begins to move in a different direction, and begins to confess his love and his concern of the people that he almost just walked out on, so that he no longer had to struggle with their hardship and his hardship. Perhaps to go off and to do it alone, it would be easier than living in a world, in a broken world, and trying to maintain a pure heart. But God, in his grace, keeps him from sliding and uses the love 
and, and the feeling of injustice that he has, the love that he has for the people, the injustice that he feels for the world as evidence of why, precisely why he should remain leading the people of Israel, coming again to the temple. The psalmist comes to a place where he realises to wrestle with all of this based in feelings alone is folly, it's wearisome. And that peace lies in seeking after God's wisdom. That peace lies in going back into the presence and the fellowship of God and his people. We might think it odd that Asaph, one of Israel's great leaders in worship, would allow his conflict to keep him from church would be the thing that would move him off in isolation. Yet how often is it that when we're wrestling with life, the last place we seem to want to be is sent the wrong slides through. Sorry, Rose. Let's scrap them. Church. And yet the realisation of this psalm is that is where God restores the heart and mind most powerfully in confession through worship. It is the presence of God and not the distractions of this world that God is able to reorientate his seduced heart and heal his wounded soul. Asaph gets a new perspective on the problem when he considers not the circumstances around him but the destiny before him. When he experiences again the presence of the Lord, Asap realises or, or is reminded that what he saw in the lives of the wicked is not a true picture but only a pretense, a fading reality. You despise them as, as fantasies. There is no real security in their practices of life. They, they actually live life like it's a dream. There's no long-lasting reality in what they do. The psalmist is beginning to have his mind recalibrated. Uh, the Apostle John wrote, This world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This understanding of the fleeting nature of the wicked and the eternal uh, privilege of the pure of heart is not a malicious anticipation of the coming destruction of the wicked. He's not sitting here going, I cannot wait till they just get it in the neck. But it's a realisation of the insecurity of the sinner of the insecurity of the sinner's position compared with his own immeasurable and permanent blessing, his own security that he has in being in relationship with God. Asaph has been humbled by the Lord and has regained spiritual balance. The psalm opened with the declaration, surely the Lord is good to Israel, but the wrestle was, what does good look like? Is good, does good look like just having wealth and material possession or does good look like being in relationship 
with a graceful and forgiving and restoring God. In verses 23 to 28, Asaph contrasts what it is, what, uh, it is what, what good is against what the world believes good is. Good is a lasting and deeply satisfying life with God against the fading realities that we find in verses 4 to 14 of the world. The ungodly might impress each other and attract admirers, but they don't have and enjoy the presence of God with them. The pain and the anguish of life is transformed to joy in the presence of God. God is the psalmist's chief desire, he says. Twice he repeats this. With you, with you, to be with you is good. He repeats this to express his joy in the restored fellowship with God. And yet, those who are far from God will perish. The ungodly may have everything they want, but they are without the one thing they need, the one thing that cannot be taken in this life or the one to come, peace and fellowship with God, with the one who does judge the hearts of all people. In his wrestle, God has kept Asaph's foot, has, has, grabbed, has stopped it from slipping. And yet, in contrast, we see the wicked will slip. Their demise will come. God has kept him from sin, but those who engage in sin will meet ultimate justice. He has a renewed faith and confidence in God. God is the refuge of his soul. His flesh and heart may have failed, but God stepped in. God grabbed him as he began to slip, guiding him with good counsel, restoring his mind. And he finishes, But as for me, it is good to be near God, when life casts doubts, when suffering uh, pushes in on us, when our hearts begin to nurture bitterness, the wisdom of this psalm is telling us not to stay there, not to nurture it, but to come again in worship to God, to have our hearts healed, to have our minds restored. I wonder if this is your space. I wonder if at times we've questioned the goodness of God. Wondered, is he really for us? You know, unlike the psalmist, we live in a much clearer picture of the extent of God's being for us and his goodness. Anytime you wonder whether God is for you, you need look no further than the cross. No further than the place where God actually came and took on the brokenness of this world. He's not indifferent to it. He's not unaware of it. He is not like 
uh, what the scoffers and the wicked say, unable to deal with it, uninterested in it and unconcerned. He is deeply interested. He is deeply concerned and he deals with it personally. And so we can take refuge in the shelter of a cross, in the shelter of God's ultimate display of being for us. So this morning, I think we're singing Cornerstone as our last song. It's a song that just says, hey, when life wants to rip us to pieces emotionally, in turmoil, let's not stay in that space. Let's move back. Move back towards the promises of God where we know truth lies. Again and again we see God is for us, that he is good to the pure in heart, that he is good to those who seek him. Let's pray. Hey Lord, we thank you uh, for this psalm. Uh, it's been just uh, quite... Uh, I don't know what the word is. Um, exposing. To see the rawness uh, expressed in psalms. To see that great people who we would put up as heroes, wrestle with, with sin and doubt and yet you're a God who comes and restores. And we live in a, in a greater promise than just the, 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 the temple where you've got to go to a geographical location to experience the presence of God. We, we live in the fullness of that promise where the presence of God, the work of Christ is given into the hearts of every believer. And as we gather together in the unity of the Spirit, uh, as we've said already today, we encourage each other. And in worship, we reaffirm the truths of our faith with each other. And we give praise and thanks for all that God has done for us in Jesus. So this morning, uh, if our hearts are wrestling with bitterness and nurturing anger, would you gently... Restore us back to your presence and a place where we can confess that we have felt this way and ask that you would heal our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.